Welcome to Timeless Truth with Pastor Jim Thomas, a resource of the Village Chapel in Nashville, Tennessee. This week we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. To find studies of other books of the Bible from our archive, you can search our sermon library at thevillagechapel.com resources. These studies, we pray, will help you to think biblically in all categories of life so that we all might be formed more into the likeness of Christ. Now, here's Pastor Jim. I love it that we have four different gospel accounts, four different eyewitness or near eyewitness accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. Um, Each of them have some unique aspect in their telling and recalling what they saw or what they heard. And in Mark's gospel in chapter 14, there's just a wealth of information about the interaction of Jesus with his disciples, especially in that uh, in those few hours leading up to his arrest and betrayal, which we've already studied. I want to take a step back and then come back to the very, very end of Mark chapter 14, but take a step back to where Jesus warns Peter. Uh, let me read verse 29 and following in chapter 14. Peter says to Jesus, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And there he is, Peter, the sort of bold and brash and overconfident Christian. This will never happen to me. I'm not the one that's ever going to betray you or deny you or whatever. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. Jesus very clearly telling him what's going to happen, how he will know that it has happened, and that Jesus knew it would happen in advance. He attaches that that sort of sign of the rooster crowing twice. And before that happens, um, you'll hear a rooster, and then in between that time and the next time the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Um, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. And so there in verse 31, you have this uh, overconfidence becomes kind of a a contagious thing. Yeah, me too, me too. You know, everybody's like that. And they're all wanting to be bold and, and, and seem strong and all that sort of thing. We've already read that Jesus and the disciples then are in Gethsemane. Um, that Jesus is praying, the disciples are falling asleep, that that uh, Jesus is in agony and anguish over what's about to happen. He knows about all of that. He lays it all before the Father and expresses uh, his own um, confidence in the Father's design. He says, not my will, but thine be done. And you can always pray right alongside Jesus in that regard. Um, that's a great way to pray. Um, Jesus is, uh, you know, betrayed betrayed by Judas, who shows up with the, you know, the the guard, and they've all got torches and swords and clubs, and they arrest Jesus, and they take him away, and he is dragged before all of his accusers, mostly religious leaders at the time. But what Jesus predicted earlier in the chapter that I just read for you about Peter denying Christ is now what I want us to turn our focus and attention on to. Verse 66, as Peter, who followed, as, a, as the, the, the soldiers that came and arrested Jesus, and they haul him off, 
and they take him to the house of Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, and they interrogate him. Uh, Peter is following along, but kind of from a distance. And I think that's telling. I think that actually um, is a clue. And if I were gonna, if I were gonna call what we're about to read anything at all, um, I would, I would probably title it something like this: Six Steps on How to Ruin Your Spiritual Life or how to crash and burn in your spiritual life. And I, I, I don't, I, I, I mean this not to be humorous, but as a warning to myself and to all of us to watch out for these things. And following from a distance is certainly one of them. Um, what happens in verse 54, uh, as Jesus is indeed arrested, it says, verse 54, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Wow, that's that's fascinating. Jump to verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. He denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. And Mark is saying that so that he knows, or that we know, that when the subject matter of the conversation that this uh, young lady is uh, having with Peter, when that becomes uncomfortable, his... uh, uh, Peter's response is to withdraw. And maybe you're like that. There are a lot of people that are like that. Um, they they are conflict avoidance people. And when somebody brings something up, the first thing they want to do is withdraw. Peter withdraws here after he denies it. I don't, I don't, want you, I don't understand what you're even talking about. And he went out on the porch. So it's a very general denial here at this point. But the withdrawal is pretty dramatic, isn't it? Well, the servant girl saw him. Uh, and um, uh, began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But he again denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean too. A lot of the Bible commentators think that uh, Peter likely had a Galilean accent. You know, I mean, here, here in the United States, for instance, you can tell if somebody's from Boston or uh, maybe you can tell that they're from Alabama or, or, you know, somewhere in the South and they've got a big, heavy Southern accent. Well, the Galileans uh, could have easily had some kind of an accent as well. And here is Peter down in the South in Jerusalem. And um, they are noticing that he speaks like a Galilean. Uh, Verse 71, but he began Peter's response to this sort of uh, another another accusation that he, you you are one of them. Surely you were with him. He began to curse and to swear. I do not know this man you are talking about. So now he is really heated and ramped up because he's cursing and swearing. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him. Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. 
Oh, wow. So Mark, uh, who some people think was informed in writing this entire gospel account, was informed by Peter. He may have indeed been uh, somewhat of a scribe for Peter, writing things down for him. And that is great insight. That's very personal insight to say that he began to weep. I think it's Luke's gospel that tells us that about the time that second rooster crows, that Jesus is being led out of the house and his eyes catch Peter's eyes in the court there, in the courtyard. And that rooster crows the second time and all of a sudden, Peter just chokes up and begins to cry. Um, most of you will know that it will be three days before Jesus rises again from the dead. For three days, Peter, the last thing he remembers is the last time he saw his Lord, the last time he saw Jesus. He had just denied Jesus three times, just exactly as Jesus had predicted he would do. Even though Peter, with all of his objections, with his overconfidence, and his infectious overconfidence that the others, oh, me neither, I'll never deny you either. And yet, the minute Jesus was arrested, they all scattered. They ran for fear of their own lives uh, in shock that Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher, the healer, the one that had such amazing power and authority, had been taken, arrested by the Romans. Well, for three days, Peter lives with that very uncomfortable moment. I don't know if you've ever you know, had an argument with somebody that maybe maybe a roommate or your spouse or something, you're in the same household and you know you you uh, you don't resolve it, but you go to bed and you think it's gonna you're gonna wake up and things will be better and you wake up and things aren't better. And I love the Bible's advice: don't let the sun go down on your anger. I think that's really good advice. Uh, find a way to deal with it before you go to bed, um, even if it's just we'll, we'll talk in the morning. But I just want you to know I'm I'm uh, I, I want to work together on this and I want to resolve this. Um, but he's got to live with this, Peter does, for three days. Now, it is remarkable what's going to happen in the future. I'll tell you about that in a future episode, What you know, when Jesus rises from the dead and what how he encounters Peter and all that. We'll get there, but I don't want to jump the gun too soon. I think there's some lessons here about what it takes to, if you want to be like Peter and ruin your spiritual life, which I hope you don't. Um, but when I look back on the times when my own spiritual life has been, you know, undulating, and maybe I'm down in one of those troughs, down in you know troughs where it's it's difficult, and I'm in the in the low spot. Um, here are I, I'll give you six things that I think um, uh, could, if if you wanted to ruin your spiritual life, it could derail it for you. Follow from a distance. Follow Jesus from a distance. Drift back. Just don't be in close proximity. You know, and you know what that means. You know, you know what that ends up in a practical way what that looks like. It looks like you, you stopped praying or you stopped reading the Bible. You stopped fellowshipping with God's people. You stopped uh, uh, just being aware of the presence of the Lord in your life and you drift and nothing good ever comes from drift in a spiritual sense. 
So when you start following from a distance, that like like Peter literally did that that night, um, but I'm I'm using that as a, a bit of an analogy. Just say, don't follow Jesus from a distance, man. Follow close um, and stay in close proximity to him and to his word and to his people. Secondly, um, he sits down with the enemy. I don't know if you saw that in the courtyard there. He sits down with those people who were the enemies of Christ. And he's in the courtyard of the religious leadership and the religious leadership are the ones that are interrogating Jesus and finding a way. They've, they've, we, we've known this all through our study of Mark, that they wanted to do away with Jesus, wanted to discredit Jesus. They literally wanted to put Jesus to death. And they, they've, they think their moment has come. And now here's Peter, Peter sitting down with the enemy, essentially there. And thirdly, another uh, you know, and by the way, when you sit down, you're more comfortable in the presence of people when you sit with them. Um, and that's, that's just a, a, another sort of symbolic gesture of being comfortable with people and their company. And when you do that, spiritually speaking, you find yourself making small compromises along the way because you're more comfortable and more. And it just, it sort of turns into a bit of a spiral down, right? And you start to warm yourself by a foreign fire. And that's what Peter is doing here as well. In other words, not only are you comfortable sitting with those people, but you're finding, you think, your your comfort, your your needs being met by this foreign fire. You think they're being met by this foreign fire anyway. And the same thing happens to us spiritually and morally, practically. And we begin to make compromises along the way uh, to be accepted to that group that we're now hanging out with. Um, and to engage the fire is engaging with what they do and where they find their comfort, okay? And so that's really something to watch for too. Have I followed from a distance? Have I started doing that? Am I sitting down with or becoming more comfortable with people who don't believe? And maybe some that are at odds with belief. And am I starting to find solace and comfort in some of the things that they find solace and comfort in? That's really important, I think. Um, number four, I'm going to say, and by the way, this will all be in the show notes. Uh, so follow from a distance, sit down with the enemy, warm yourself by a foreign fire, evade identification. We see that in verse uh, 66 through 72. And the rest of these are in 66 through 72. Evade identification. Find a way to just deny. Now, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. That's that first time the servant girl says something to him. Hey, weren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of the ones with him? And he evades identification and literally withdraws. And sometimes that happens with us too. Aren't you a Christian? Are you, what are you? What are, you? are you a believer? Are you one of those kind of bigoted, phobic Christians too? Do you believe that silly stuff, that nonsense? And when we get, you know, the pressure gets turned up a little bit. It's, you know, it's, you know, there's there's sort of that self-survival instinct that kicks in. And sometimes uh, we don't want to run the risk of being identified, you know. And so evading identification is something to watch out for as believers. Uh, Let's be bold. Let's 
let's shout it from the rooftops. I'm not saying we're let's be a strobe light in the in right in the face of of everybody and become annoying, uh, obnoxious Christians. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying when asked, "Do you belong to Jesus?" the answer is wholeheartedly, wholethroatedly, yes. I do. And I'm so glad I do. I can't believe he would have me. <laughs> so uh, whimsical, yes. You don't have to be annoying. Uh, but don't try to evade identification with Jesus. Be identified with Jesus. Um, fifth, self-loathing. And that's Peter exhibits that here, doesn't he? We see him get heated and he begins cursing. And that's a sign. Usually when there's behavior like that, you want to look for the brokenness behind the behavior. And I think one of the things that's going on inside of him eternally, internally, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, but I think he's pretty mad at himself. And I think there's a bit of self-loathing going on. And certainly when he weeps after his eyes catch Jesus' eyes and that rooster crows the second time, I think self-loathing is in full bloom, as is the sixth thing, which is definitive denial. Um, and that he has gotten to in verses 66 through 72. He is not only um, denying that he even knows anything about Jesus, but he's cursing and saying, no, I don't. I don't even know what you're talking about. And cursing and swearing, I do not know this man that you are talking about. And that is definitive denial. Um, and the thing about this, you guys, um, no matter where you live, no matter who you are, no matter what your cultural response to religion is or to specifically to the Christian gospel is, if denial of Jesus was possible for one of his closest disciples, an apostle, and one of the guys who ends up being the leader of the early church, and you know, in parentheses, that's a little bit of a spoiler alert um, that this is going to change. This is going to reverse at some point. But for right now, in this particular moment, he's had a very definitive denial of Jesus. And if that can happen to a guy like him, I need to be on my guard. I need to be alert, as Jesus said multiple times here. Watch and pray. Be on guard. Be Remain alert, 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 as said multiple times, as I said. While we may not verbally deny Christ, some of us, uh, as Peter did, we may not have to. We may be in a culture that's semi-friendly to faith. Um, uh, or we may be in a culture that's friendly to faith. And, and we may not verbally deny Christ, but I do wonder in what ways we might exhibit uh, a, a, an implicit denial of Christ. Um, for instance, in not receiving the offer of God's grace, don't I implicitly deny that Christ has done everything necessary for my salvation? In other words, what is at the heart of the statement, I just don't think the Lord could forgive me? Are we not saying, I don't think the Lord can be the Lord, or I don't think he can be my savior. He doesn't have the ability to do that. And so, I, I, and get, hear me out on this, because if you struggle with not being able to forgive yourself, it might actually be that you just don't believe God 
could forgive you. It could actually be that kind of unbelief that is uh, sort of a misguided notion of who Christ is. Listen, Jesus came for sinners, not for perfect people. He came for sinners. That's really, really important for you to know that. Um, so sometimes I think in not receiving the grace that is on offer to us, we are implicitly denying that Christ is or can be our Savior. Another thing, another way that I think we sometimes deny Christ is in withholding forgiveness uh, that we should show to someone else. Sometimes I think we're denying, in, in essence, I think we're denying that, that Christ has forgiven us too. Remember, we studied uh, in the four gospels uh, so many times at Village Chapel uh, and have said so many times things like the Lord's Prayer. Um, yeah, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's the only conditional statement in the Lord's Prayer. Just in the same way that we forgive others, Lord, will you forgive us, please? And Jesus is the one who taught us to pray like that. Jesus is the one who says, if you withhold forgiveness, how can you expect to receive forgiveness? And so I think sometimes our unwillingness to forgive others is that we haven't actually come to grips with the fact that we've been forgiven or how much we've been forgiven. And that's another way in which I think sometimes we deny Christ. A couple quotes and I'll let you go for the day. Just hope, hope this, if nothing else, this just gets you thinking and become aware of, uh, of what, you know, how easy it is to fall into uh, a similar kind of a trap and, and ruin our spiritual lives by, you know, in, just in some way denying Christ. So the six things again, follow from a distance like Peter did, sit down with the enemy, warm yourself by a foreign fire, evade identification, the self-loathing that takes over here in Peter, and the definitive denial, which is so explicit in his own, you know, cursing and, and screaming and, and uh, uh, denying Christ these three times. Tim Keller has a, a book that's essentially a, a group of his sermons on the Gospel of Mark. In which, It's called King's Cross, by the way, if you want the book. I'll put this in the show notes as well. Please don't try to keep Jesus on the periphery of your life. He cannot remain there. Give yourself to him. Center your entire life on him and let his power reproduce his character in you. So this is the opposite of dying Christ, okay? It's putting Christ right at the center, uh, not at the periphery, but right at the center, as Keller has said it here. Uh, giving yourself to him, centering your entire life on him, your relationships, your work ethic, um, um, the, uh, the things you do when you're, uh, you know, recreating or playing or whatever you want to call it, the kind of humor you use, all of that stuff, the, the kinds of diet you take in media-wise, all that stuff. Put Jesus at the center of all of that. Don't, don't shut him out. Don't deny him any of those spaces in your life or in your heart. I think that's really important for us on an individual level. If we are seeking to follow, not from a distance, but to follow in close proximity to Jesus, keep him at the center. Let his power reproduce his character 
in you. I think that's so well said by Tim Keller. Uh, There's an older guy that was an American Quaker author and theologian, former chaplain to Harvard and Stanford universities. His name uh, is Elton Trueblood. I've got an old book of his called The Company of the Committed. I think it's way out of print, or you might be able to find it online or something like that, but I'll put this quote in the show notes as well. He said, the church, however large its buildings and however grand its ceremonies or vestments, is a denial of Christ unless it is affecting the world in business and government and education and many other segments of human experience. In other words, the Christ life blooming, blossoming in us to the point where it's actually influencing all of those around us. And in, you know, if you were to rewrite that night for Peter, uh, when that girl, servant girl asked him, aren't you one of them too? The answer would have been yes. And you can know him too. And he loves you too. Um, And the kind of change he is bringing about in my life, he can bring about in your life as well. Um, and he can forgive you all your sins and reconcile you to God. There's such great news available to us as believers. That's why all four gospels, the word gospel means good news. And it's good news about what Christ has done. It's good news for you. It's good news for me. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the message of this passage And uh, thank you that uh, we also, who have read to the end of the book, know the rest of the story here. And I'm excited to get there in an episode or two. But Lord, do a good work inside of my heart and the hearts of uh, those who may be listening or watching today, um, that we might live and, and, and walk in the light of the grace that's been shown to us, how full and, and how, how you've lavished it upon us, Lord, and help us rest in that, um, that it is all motivated by your great love for people exactly like us, people who are sinners, people who are broken, uh, people who have run away from you so many times. Lord, uh, call us by name, call us back to yourself. Um, restore and renew us, I pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. And amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening to today's study. Take a moment to leave a review and share this episode with friends and family. You can stay connected by signing up for our newsletter or follow us on social media. At the Village Chapel, we believe God's word is unique in its source, timeless in its truth, broad in its reach, and transforming in its power. For more resources or to support our ministry, visit our website, thevillagechapel.com.